the affordability crisis in real estate, especially in Metro Vancouver. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show now BC's Housing Minister, David Eby. Minister, thanks for coming on this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Let's start with the uh, pace of new building approvals here in BC at the local government level. And this is something you've expressed concern about. What is your concern there in terms of the slow? What is it? You believe there's a slow pace of building approvals in the province. Is that your concern? Well, there are too many municipalities in fast-growing areas of the province, uh, Metro Vancouver, South Vancouver Island, and the Okanagan, where it is incredibly challenging to uh, get a, for example, a purpose-built rental housing building uh, through the application process and built. And uh, and it's not just purpose-built rental housing, uh, and it's not just affordable housing through BC Housing, but it's also market housing. Uh, and the, the challenge is uh, that we have, the federal government tells us, uh, 300,000 uh, new Canadians who are going to be arriving every year. A, a big portion of those folks are going to come to British Columbia, and we're seeing it. In the most recent quarterly results we have, uh, almost 25,000 people uh, from other countries and other provinces chose to move to British Columbia. And that is a 30-year high at the same time as we have an, an historic low in MLS listings and very low vacancy rates in rental housing. So we need to build housing to prepare for this wave of population that is already arriving. And uh, and we can't take five years to approve a rental building. We just can't. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked a lot about this on the show. And in fact, recently we talked about a, a condo development in Oak Bay in suburban Victoria, where the developer there had been working on the project for nine years, nine years to develop a, a four-story condo on a, on the main street in Oak Bay, only to see it get shot down by the local city council after nine years. Is is that the, the type of thing you're concerned about? Yeah, I mean, it's concerning when this is a proposal, as I understand it, that was consistent with Oak Bay's official community plan. It was in the area that the city had set aside for this kind of housing, uh, and it didn't get to go to even the public hearing. I don't often hear a developer call for the ability to go to a public hearing, but this developer wanted it to go to a public hearing so that people yeah. could weigh in. But, I mean, it's easy to, to sort of single out Oak Bay where even secondary suites, basement suites, aren't currently legal, uh, but it's not... Oak Bay only. It's it's uh, it's an issue in many different municipalities, and there are some municipalities, Mike. I want to say because I've seen some of them in the media saying, "Hold on, uh, what about us uh, here in, for example, Coquitlam or uh, Burnaby?" And and fair enough. I mean, some municipalities are really hustling, and some uh, are trying to work out the challenges that they face. I know Vancouver and Saanich are trying to improve their systems, but I I just really need to convey the sense of crisis that I feel about the number of people who are coming and the amount of housing that's available. And if we you know, at the provincial government level, the costs of this that we see are we have to respond to encampments, people living in their cars, uh, uh, consequences for families of overcrowding, especially new arrivals, jamming into basement suites and so on. Like we, we just need to uh, see with open eyes what's coming and respond to it. And, uh, and I think the provincial government has a role to play here to support municipalities and incent them in some cases. Okay, speaking of BC Housing Minister David Eby, so what are you proposing here? Because there have been some concerns expressed by municipality that, oh, here comes the big foot of the provincial government. They're going to overrule us and uh, overrule our jurisdiction, approve these housing projects uh, directly instead of letting the local government doing. Is that is that on the table? 
Well, this is what they do in Ontario. They have a ministerial approval process uh, where the minister can direct a municipality to approve it. They also have a secondary review process where you can essentially appeal if your rezoning is turned down to a provincial municipal appeals board. Uh, we're not looking at either of those options, but we're, we're, we have two pieces. One is um, we have a technical review that is uh, streamlining the approvals process called uh, DAPR. It's, a, it's an acronym, but it basically uh, looks at the development approvals review process and uh, makes recommendations around that. But we're also um, uh, looking at the recommendations from a report called Opening Doors, which uh, said, you know, we have this population growth. Uh, our housing is not keeping up. Here are some ways to incent municipalities to keep track. We uh, require municipalities now to do something called a housing needs survey. This is how many housing units we need. And I think that's where the opportunity lies, is, is around incentives and requirements, frankly, that municipalities hit these targets that they have. Uh, and in some cases, they've set out for themselves in regional growth strategies. So um, how, do we, how do we make sure that those targets are hit? Okay, as you are aware, the Union of BC Municipalities has expressed some concern about this. They put out a recent report saying that the pace of housing approvals at the local government level is actually doing very well. It's matching the population growth. I spoke to Coquitlam City Councillor Craig Hodge recently on the show. He is a representative to the Union of BC Municipalities. He's concerned about the provincial government meddling in uh, municipal jurisdiction. Here's what he had to say to me, Minister. I'll get your thoughts on the other side of this. Craig Hodge here. I think that we need to respect local government autonomy and the, and the rights of local citizens to have a say in how their community develops. Uh, it's only recently that the provincial government is starting to point the finger and say, well, you're, you're not doing enough at the local level to, uh, to approve the housing. Okay, what do you say to him? Well, you know, two parts. Uh, one is uh, at the provincial level, I think we have some responsibility. We have some uh, ministries that are responsible for housing, and we're looking at how to streamline our own processes. And I don't think it's inappropriate to ask municipalities to uh, pick up the pace. But the, the disturbing piece about the report uh, to me was the argument that we're building enough housing, because it is patently obvious that we are not. I mean, it's just so anybody who is looking for a place to rent right now in any uh, uh major center in the province, Okanagan, uh, South Vancouver Island, Metro Vancouver, are struggling. And if you're looking for a place to buy, you've got families lining up 20 deep to try to find an affordable townhome. It's clear, it's so obvious that there's not enough housing. So to issue a report that says, hey, we're doing, you know, there's more than enough housing, that's a serious problem. And that's a serious disconnect. And I don't actually believe that that's the position of most mayors uh, across the province. I think a lot of them uh, see the need for housing in their communities because we actually uh, required them to do a housing needs survey. So yeah. that disconnect is more worrying to me. I think we can work out the process piece, Mike, but, but the fact that they're saying there's enough housing in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary is really troubling. Minister, let me ask you about another issue in the, in the housing file, and that is the cooling off period that's proposed by your government. We saw a bill in front of the B.C. legislature yesterday on this that would effectively allow a home buyer to potentially back out of a deal, uh, give them some breathing room or wriggle room to get out of the deal. There's been some criticism of this as well. Let me play another clip here for you. Liberal MLA Mike Bernier on this file speaking this morning to Simi Sarah, then we'll get your thoughts. Obviously, there's some, uh, some issues and some challenges that need to be, to be addressed uh, out there. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure, though, that we're protecting the buyers, we're, we're protecting the sellers as well. Uh, and, you know, this bill, though, there's, again, the problem is there's no information. And, in fact, one of the bullets even says that, you know, people have the right to pull out of the, the purchase 
but then there could be a penalty to that. So now that's going to make people even more nervous. Uh, what does a penalty look like if they do back out because they decide and they change their mind? So, again, a lot of unanswered questions, uh, and this bill didn't really help give any clarity. Okay, Liberal MLA Mike Bernier speaking this morning, speaking to BC Housing Minister David Eby. Can you, t- can you talk a little bit about this cooling off period and how it would work? Yeah, the, the idea is relatively straightforward, Mike, and it's in place in other jurisdictions uh, around the world. The idea is that uh, we are in an overheated market for the reasons that I outlined, population growth, a shortage in listings. People are putting in uh, offers to buy homes, uh, in, in some cases having seen it once briefly uh, yeah. with no conditions, and it gives them the opportunity to uh, do a proper inspection. I mean, there was a news story about a family that discovered a colony of bats living in the, in the home after they purchased it. So, you know, it, it just gives uh, purchasers the chance to uh, do those inspections and due diligence to make sure they're not on the hook for and, something that wasn't obvious on the first and, and if a, a buyer decides to use this loophole to get out of a, a, an agreement to purchase a property, would there be a penalty for backing out? Yes. So the, one of the concerns that was raised, and I think rightly so, is someone, and especially in Vancouver's real estate market, I think many of your listeners will know that there are people who will try to game it. And so, you know, someone puts in five or 10 offers on different places just to see what comes through. Uh, and, and if they can get out with a cooling off period, then they'll, they'll do that. And so there does need to be some consequences for, uh, for costs that are incurred by the seller or impacts on the seller. And so we'll engage in consultation with the industry uh, to make sure that that's uh, realistic to address the issue, but also protects both buyers and sellers. Minister, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. You bet, Mike. Thanks very much. We will not buy the F-35 fighter jet. <laughs> Okay, okay, that was a long time ago, though, right? 2015. Yeah, so that was then, this is now. So Trudeau, for many, many years, said there was no way he was going to buy those F-35 fighter jets. Uh, dramatic turnaround by government yesterday. So the federal government now, Defense Minister Anita Anand, announcing Canada will enter into negotiation to purchase the F-35 fighter jets from defense giant Lockheed Martin. What is the price tag on these jets? Well, that's been kicking around for a long time, too. Could be $19 billion to buy these jets. This has been going on for so long. Justin Trudeau here. Let's go back to 2015. Here he is again. Saying there's no way he was going to buy these jets. Have a listen. The new Liberal government won't buy the overpriced F-35 stealth fighter jet. It's a stealth fighter that will cost tens of billions more than what Harper promised a stealth fighter that can't defend our Arctic, a stealth fighter that's not actually stealth, and until yesterday, a fighter jet that Stephen Harper's own government put on hold for those same reasons. Well, this is now the fighter jet that Stephen Harper wants to buy no matter what, no matter what it costs. That F-35 might be Stephen Harper's dream, but I can tell you, for Canadian taxpayers, it'll be a nightmare. Okay, Justin Trudeau there, going back into the Wayback Machine there, saying he wouldn't buy the fighter jets. Well, here we go. Canada saying we will now enter into negotiations to purchase the F-35 jets. Let's discuss now with our panel. Got both sides of it here for you. David Creighton, very pleased to welcome him back. Senior parliamentary columnist with the Western Standard. Hey, David. 
Hi, nice to be back, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also, pleased to welcome back Tamara Lorings. Tamara is a peace activist. She's with Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. Hi, Tamara. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for being here again, guys. Tamara, let me go to you first. The government announcing yesterday they will enter into negotiation to buy the F-35 fighter jets. Your your thoughts on that? Well, everything that our Prime Minister said uh, six years ago about the F-35 are still relevant today. The plane is still a nightmare. The costs are even more. There are more technical flaws it's still not going to be able to, uh, you know, defend our Arctic. Uh, the stealth is terrible. Uh, this is an absolutely terrible fighter jet that Canada shouldn't buy. We're not going to be able to afford it. And uh, I, I think that, uh, the, that the federal government shouldn't ink the deal with with the United States government and Lockheed Martin and uh, should should actually really engage in a process of disarmament. We, we, we don't need fighter jets anymore. Okay. David Creighton, your thoughts? Well, obviously, it's come as about 10 years too late, but I have to congratulate Justin Trudeau. It's very difficult for me to say because I rarely ever congratulate Justin Trudeau on anything, but it's nice he's finally seen the light of day on this because he has to bring Canada into the fifth era fighter age if he didn't do this i mean let's face it we'd be losing more and more pilots to f-18s falling out of the air because these jets are way past their lifetime and we have to buy the f-35 there's simply no other option what do you think of tamara's tamara's arguments about that the jets are 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 not appropriate i i wasn't aware i had an aerospace engineer across the aisle that's absolute nonsense. This is the best jet available today. And that's why the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Marines, the U.S. Navy, the Royal Australian Air Force, and the Royal Air Force all fly the F-35 with much success. And that's why Canada will be flying it with the Royal Canadian Air Force. It's okay. called interoperability. And if we bought another jet, we simply couldn't train or fly any combat missions with our principal allies. And Tamara, it's really that simple. Tamara, what do you say to that? Well, the government accountability office, the American watchdog has done a series of reports that shows that there are outstanding over 800 open deficiencies with the F-35 that, you know, still haven't been resolved. The F-35 is actually a serious crash risk. Uh, There have been uh, crashes in the United States because, you know, the pilots have difficulty with these uh, highly, highly uh, technical uh, helmets that they have to uh, wear and uh, the uh, the 8 million lines of code, you know, for the navigation uh, uh, systems on board. And um, the congressional hearings that took place last spring showed that uh, the the F-35 program is going to be unaffordable, even for the U.S. government that spends nearly a trillion dollars on its military. The, the U.S. Senate said that um, the sustainment costs are so high. Uh, you know, the one hour operation of an F-35 is in the range of 38,000 U.S. dollars per flying hour. That's equivalent to 48,000 Canadian dollars. These okay. planes are extremely expensive and they're very flawed.
Okay, well, Dave. It's clear, it's, it's, it's clear she knows nothing about the opera, the uh, sustainment costs of the F-18. When you have extremely old fighters, the maintenance hours for flight hours become extremely unreliable and extremely high. That's why we had to replace the Labrador helicopter, for instance, on the West Coast, and I was involved in that replacement project. But it's, it, it is ridiculous to suggest that this is a, a, a fighter aircraft that simply is, is un, unreliable. That's why, is that why more countries are flying it now? This is the best fighter jet available today. Every fighter jet has technical problems. But uh, the pilots that I have talked to, and I'm an ex-Air Force officer, and I know this fighter aircraft very well. I've been fighting for it in and out of an Air Force uniform now for over 10 years. It is the best thing available. And this is why all of our allies are flying it. And simply put, Justin Trudeau had no other choice. Canada has to maintain a state-of-the-art fighter force. And this is what Canada has to do. We are right now a part of NATO. NATO is facing its greatest threat since the beginning of the Cold War. Ukraine is under attack by Russia. We cannot pretend that we, we can bring peace through weakness. We have okay. to bring peace through strength. And this is what Justin Trudeau is telegraphing with this deal, that okay. we are going to be a Canada strong and free. Hey, Tamara, let me ask you about a point that you raised and about Canada's sovereignty in the Arctic and our defense capabilities there. This is an issue that's been brought up, especially with the aggression we've seen by Russia. Uh, there have been a lot of people have wondered about whether we have robust enough defenses in the Canadian Arctic. D did you say that the F-35 jet cannot defend the Arctic? Oh, the F-35 is a single engine warplane uh, it, it's not suited for uh the arctic environment i mean there's very few uh runways that can uh you know that can have uh, uh fighter jets uh, land and take off and um you know top defense analysts uh, have have said that the f-35 is not suited for the arctic environment because it has only one you know, one engine. And um, the other thing that's really important here is that um, the real uh, security challenges that we have in the Arctic relate to catastrophic climate change. A scientific report just came out again that the, the fastest warming region on the planet is the Arctic. You know, we've got We've got uh, glaciers melting. We've got, you know, very serious warming that's uh, th that's causing, you know, these extreme weather events that we're seeing, you know, across the country. We need to okay. we need to demilitarize and protect the Arctic, not bring more fighter jets to that region. David, what about our Arctic defenses? Your thoughts there? Well, I, I don't even find this argument vaguely credible. I mean, there's been numerous reports stating that the F-35 can function in an Arctic environment. The United States has an Arctic environment, too. It's called Alaska. And our, our Arctic strategy is not composed entirely of air defense. It's also, it's also composed of land and, and sea defense. And that's, it's, it's ludicrous to suggest it's, it's going to be entirely defended by the air. But I think it's, once again, we have to look at the acquisition of the F-35 as a part of Canada's greater defense need. And we have been defense poppers for far too long. And right now, we are looking at the greatest nuclear threat in the, since the beginning of the Cold War. And Canada has to have a strategic and a credible defense posture. And okay. that includes having a viable fighter force.
All right, talking about the F-35 fighter jet for Canada, Defence Minister Anita Anand announcing yesterday the government will go into negotiations now with Lockheed Martin to purchase the F-35, something Justin Trudeau once said he would not do. Been talking about this one for many, many years now. Looks like it's going forward now. My guests are David Creighton, the Western Standard, Tamara Lorenx, Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. Lots of calls on this. Dave in West Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Oh, morning, Mike. Uh, I'd just like to give a couple of quotes from a couple of eminent gentlemen uh, pertaining to these, uh, well, the people who are against uh, arming our armed forces. And the first one was over 100 years ago, and it was Rudyard Kipling. And, of course, he called uh, the um, military men uh, Tommies. And I'll, I quote, Oh, it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy, you great big brute. But it's, oh, you Tommy, you're loverly when the guns begin to shoot, unquote. And the other one was from another quite eminent man named Churchill, who said at the beginning of the Cold War, when the Soviets were uh, building their wall, uh, he said, every, I quote, uh, every nation on earth has army boots on its soil, either its own or somebody else's, unquote. I think that just tells a lot about the, what's going on today. Okay, Dave, thank you for that call. Tamara, uh, when you talk about the need for disarmament, like, w- would you acknowledge that Canada has to have a military? You're not talking about Canada not having any military at all, are you? Well, we're talking about the F-35 today, and this is a stealth fighter, which is a first-strike attack warplane. Canada doesn't need that uh, kind of a weapon system. And it's also really important for listeners to know that these warplanes are for fighting. We need to stop uh, the, uh, fighting. We actually have something called the Arctic Council, where we uh, work diplomatically with Russia on on issues that relate to the Arctic. So we can uh, use disarmament and and diplomacy, um, international negotiations to resolve any uh, conflict. Okay. Okay, David Crane. I would like to comment on that. Actually, in the first in the first place, we're not we're not going to stop Russia by talking with them right now. I hope we do because I, I don't want to go to war with Russia. I want this war to stop. I think it's insane. I think it could lead to nuclear conflict. And but I tell you, we're not going to stop them through weakness. We're going to stop them through strength, and that's what NATO is all about. And we're going to stop. But but to to address that comment about Rudyard Kipling. It's very true. And I'm sick and tired of peace activists saying they're for peace. You know who's more for peace than everybody else? It's people in uniform. I went to Bosnia in uniform, and I I defended peace. And I I guaranteed peace with a lot of other people in uniform. And Canadians wear the uniform not to start wars, but to keep the peace all over the world. And we've been doing that successfully for a long time. And That's I tell actually you, you not don't what we've been doing. Don't hide behind peace activism. Don't hide behind peace activism. If you're not prepared to put your life on the line and put a uniform on and go out there on the front lines and defend Canada, don't pretend if to be a look, peace activist. Okay, Tara, Tara go ahead. Look, 
If you look at the latest statistics on UN peacekeeping operations, Canada is ranked very low. We're ranked 69th in the world. We only have 62 soldiers wearing the UN blue helmet. What we're doing is we're partnering on really aggressive military interventions with NATO. And if you look at the past at how our fighter jets have been used to illegally bomb Serbia, the former Yugoslavia in 1999, to bomb uh, Iraq and Syria from 2004 to 2000 and, and uh, 2014, sorry, to 2019, and then also to bomb Libya in 2011. All of these uh, uh, bombing operations have caused instability, instability, and insecurity. And still, so those bombing those missions over Kosovo and over Bosnia just- created created peace in Bosnia. That's the only reason that the Balkans are not still fighting. You have to use strength. You have to use force to enforce peace. And that's what peacemaking is all about. Actually, it's not just peacekeeping, it's peacemaking. And that's what the armed forces is all about. And if you're not prepared to do that, then don't, don't talk about peace activism. Because Tamara, the, the, arm, the military makes peace, not peace activists. Tamara, you got 30 seconds to respond there. Go ahead. Actually, we need to be uh, using our diplomats uh, to negotiate peace. And there was an opportunity to work with Russia before this uh, Russian invasion in February. Canadian officials, our most senior di- diplomat, Melanie Jolie, refused to re- meet with with uh, Russian counterparts. There was a peace agreement, the Minsk agreement, that Canada, the United States, and other NATO okay. allies, you know, a- ignored. Um, w- w- we don't need fighter jets. Uh, okay. We need to be working cooperatively and peacefully with other countries. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot about crime on the streets of the city and on the show, the break-ins, the broken windows, the random stranger assaults on the streets of Vancouver and on public transit, too. Now, safety on SkyTrain, a particular concern right now, especially women being groped and assaulted on the SkyTrain system. Check out this letter to the editor in the current edition of the Burnaby Now newspaper. A reader writes, the Metrotown SkyTrain station is the busiest in all of Burnaby. I moved close to the station because I don't drive and SkyTrain is very convenient. I've heard from women who say they're ready to move out of Metrotown, though, because they don't feel safe. Let me add my voice to this, especially at the SkyTrain station. She writes, there are gropers who cruise this area on the platform and at the entrance. They jump into the crowd and accidentally bump into women with their hands. I've had this happen to me a few times. All these men pretend it was accidental, and I have no way to prove otherwise. I'm fed up. Nobody can do anything about it but I can by moving to a quieter area and using a SkyTrain station that is not as busy so I don't get grabbed in a crowd. Okay, we have heard about similar cases like this on SkyTrain earlier this year. A man accused of groping a woman on a SkyTrain near Commercial Broadway and another woman on a bus pleaded guilty to two counts of sexual assault. That happened in January. Let's check in with Constable Amanda Steed now, media liaison officer for the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. Constable Steed, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Constable, when you hear that story from a woman who's concerned about 
uh, stuff like this happening on SkyTrain, what goes through your mind? What can you say about it? Well, I mean, it, I felt that as soon as you read it, it, it was impactful. And when I read it myself, the, the first thing that came to my mind was I can actually feel her frustration in the words that she writes. And to feel like she is alone in this process, it, it makes me sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are these, uh, have you heard these complaints before? I mean, have you heard from women who say that, look, this is happening on SkyTrains, especially in busy stations like Metrotown? Um, well, of course, report, there are reports of, of sexual offending, and um, Transit Police since 2012 has, has had this as one of their top priorities yeah. um, to reduce sexual offending on the transit system. So you can see by the numbers, um, for example, last year and the year before, the numbers have actually gone down, but that's not a direct reflection of what is actually happening and the crime that's happening on the transit system. For example, the, the groping that, that we just discussed, um, it could be due to the global pandemic. Not as many people are on the train, but I think it's also important to remember that you need to report these things. It yeah. is so important, even as, as a witness or a victim of, of a groping, it's so important that we know that these incidents are going on so that we can investigate them fully. Yeah. Are these difficult cases, though, to investigate and potentially get a charge on? I mean, the woman who wrote this letter t- uh, points out that this has happened to her several times. But even if she confronts a guy who put his hands on her, he'll always act like, oh, I'm sorry, gee, it was an accident. And, and it's difficult to prove otherwise. I mean, even if she was to contact the transit police, could the transit police do anything about it? Of, of course, we take every report of any sexual offense on the transit system very seriously. And while not every uh, incident will lead to criminal charges, we, we need to know about it so that we can investigate it. There are so many different avenues of, of investigation that are available to us, whether it be um, security cameras, um, interviewing. And it's not always the first time that this person has uh, you say accidentally bumped into somebody. Maybe oh, it's happened yeah. before. Sure. Uh, and maybe by simply reporting it, you can prevent it from happening to somebody else. Yeah. Speaking to Constable Amanda Steed, Metro Vancouver Transit Police, is the Metro Town SkyTrain station uh, a particular hotspot or problem there for this kind of thing? Like it is a super busy station, right? Yeah, I, I agree. It is a, a busy station. Uh, it is a main thoroughfare uh, for, for the Lower Mainland, but it, it's not just. Uh, specifically Metrotown, there are other plenty of, of busy SkyTrain stations where there is potential for this to happen because predators who uh, prey on victims are relying on the anonymity of being lost in a crowd or maybe their actions are going unnoticed or you're uh, in a SkyTrain car and it's rush hour and it's packed full and you think, maybe somebody touched me, maybe I made a mistake. And I think the biggest thing that I can let victims know is is you matter so what happened to you matters and it doesn't it's not whether or not you made a mistake or maybe that person accidentally touched you or maybe they didn't but what if they didn't what if they did commit a sexual offense so that's why we always say it's super important to reach out to us you can text us on our texting service the number is 877777 it's discreet so say you don't want to draw attention to yourself by alerting the suspect that uh, you're calling the police. So you can text us anonymously and 
and the uh, offender will have no idea that that's what you're doing. And officers can can be at the next station to, wow. to help you. Okay, I think that's a really important thing for people to know. What is that text number again? Text number is eight seven seven seven. Seven seven. Okay. So we always tell our passengers before you get on that train, before you even leave your house to whatever trip you're going to, whether you're going to work or you're going to the mall, have that number saved in your phone before you need it. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand because there may be a perception among people that this there's nothing that can be done. Like I imagine a lot of these type of crimes uh, could go unreported from women who think like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But you know, it's been shown that you can do something about it. Like the case that I referenced earlier that was in court in uh, Vancouver and provincial Vancouver provincial court earlier this year, where yeah. a man was convicted on two counts of sexual assault. Like that was exactly. a case. Yeah, it was a case. It was a, a woman was on a SkyTrain. Uh, she was being groped. She saw the guy was right beside her. He knew that he had this guy had his hands on her, and she yeah. asked another passenger push the onboard alarm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think and they, it's and so they got important. The, and they got the guy. They got the guy and he was convicted. Amazing, right? They got yeah. him. Yeah. But I think that is, is it shows the prime example of how the safety features on transit work for you in your favor if you know about them and you're aware about them before you get on that train. So that safety strip is on every SkyTrain. It's yellow and it's above every seat. And it's a silent alarm. So it activates um, an alarm that goes to SkyTrain. Uh, that train control and that train is checked at the next station. So help yeah. is on the way and you don't even have to make a sound. But I think it's also important for, for, for women to, to realize you don't have to stay quiet. You don't have yeah. to just say, Oh, maybe it was a mistake. I think so often we are taught that uh, we have to be polite and maybe yeah. I shouldn't say anything. Maybe it was a mistake, but, but I always say to people when I interview them is maybe it's not. And you need to take that every opportunity where you can keep yourself safe. So use the, the yellow strip. Yes. Text us on our texting service. Know where the security cameras are. They're, they're on the platforms. They're uh, at, at the stations, at the ticket machines. The cameras are everywhere. And that information is available to us uh, to form our investigation. It's so important. Yeah, speaking to Constable Amanda Steed, Metro Vancouver Transit Police. Yeah, I think that is the real important takeaway here is that if something like this does happen to you, uh, report it, report it, exactly. and they can, and, and your people can respond quickly. Exactly. And even if you witness something like this, maybe you're not necessarily the victim because a lot of times, uh, only 10% of sexual offendings actually reported. So, even if you're not the victim, if you witness somebody who is a victim, we still want you to report it. Right. The surveillance video system on SkyTrain is, is a critical component here, I imagine, as well. Like a lot of people may have seen that video of a, a 61-year-old man who was pushed down the stairs at the Granville yeah. Street Sky Street SkyTrain station on March 1st. And again, this is another case where a, a charge has been laid. And yeah. the, the video evidence there was crucial, right? A hundred percent. That video evidence, and I think another crucial element to solving that case and getting charges was social media. I think without that image and without that video and the amount of views that that got on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I don't think that person would have been identified. So it's so important to have the community involved in, in the investigation process.
Yeah, you mentioned that your officers can respond quickly when there is a report of an incident on SkyTrain. Like, are Metro Transit police, are they highly visible and right at the SkyTrain stations? Are they riding on the cars or where are they positioned? How, how do they respond quickly? So we uh, police the transit system. So our transit system is quite vast. It's quite large. So our deployment and response is strategic. So it's a numbers based game. Um, so that's why sometimes we do hear from people that say, well, they don't see us. But that doesn't mean that, that we aren't there. We have 183 sworn police officers for a large area of Metro Vancouver Transit. So we're bigger than most smaller departments that have just a small area to police. So we police such a vast um, amount of space that you won't necessarily see us. But we do, if you text us, if you call us, that number goes to our dispatcher who will dispatch us to a call. Uh, we also work very closely with our jurisdictional police partners who, if we are not in a position to respond uh, in a sufficient amount of time, they will be dispatched. So if you need help, help will come to you. Constable Steve, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a good day. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the smackdown at the Oscars now that everyone is talking about the slap heard round the world. Will Smith is slapping comedian Chris Rock at the Academy Awards after the comedian made a joke about Smith's wife. Now, if you've been living under a rock somewhere and you haven't heard about this, uh, the whole world has heard about this thing now. Here's how it all went down. Have a listen. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. <laughs> oh, wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Put my wife's name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yeah, keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? Okay, Will Smith now has now issued an apology to Chris Rock. He says he was, Smith says he was wrong. He was out of line. And this is not the man that he is or wants to be. The Academy Awards, though, are, have launched their own review of this incident. And they say there could be consequences and repercussions here. For what happened. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Ari Goldkind, a legal analyst and commentator. I'm very pleased to welcome Ari back to the show. Ari, thanks a lot for coming on today. Great to be on with you, Mike. Okay, Ari, so let's talk about the legalities of this thing. I mean, there's no doubt that what we saw here in, uh, on our TVs has this was a, an assault, right? This is illegal, and the guy could have, Will Smith could have been charged with assault here, correct? Not only could have been, should have been. This was a yeah. felony committed live on air. There's a misunderstanding that simply because Chris Rock doesn't want to file charges or press charges, to use that U.S. term, that the prosecutorial office can't lay a charge. In my opinion, they should have. They should have done it immediately. Uh, the apology that we're talking about to me is of absolutely zero moment. This was a felony assault committed live, and I think it's a much bigger and more important story in our culture than even most people talking about it. I actually think it's that important a story from a cultural point of view, what Will Smith did. Yeah, what, what do you mean by that? Like, you mean like the violence that we're seeing in society right now? or The violence by those who claim to be victims. 
right? The victimhood card has been used now not as a shield, but as a sword. This is one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood. This is a man who uses all sorts of his demographic uh, background to make various excuses, but stood up on an Oscar stage and had the privilege, the spoiled Hollywood rich man's privilege, let's be clear here, to not only hit Chris Rock, by the way, a man five inches and 50 pounds lighter than him, you don't, anybody think that Will Smith uh, would have taken that shot at The Rock? Or Dave Chappelle, as many people pointed out online, who's built like a brick. You know what? This was an act of insane cowardice. And the point of why I think it's cultural is because he thought he could do it. He didn't care that it was live being watched by one of the lowest audiences in history. He didn't care that it was in front of a number of police and security. This is the very worst of privilege. These people in Hollywood who claim they're victims, who have no connection to the ordinary average hardworking taxpayer in Vancouver or in this country. And not only did he think he could do it, he was proven right, Mike. That's the worst part about it. And if any of your listeners don't even take that as a problem, go find the video of Will Smith at the Oscars after party, where in the most monstrous, vomitatious way, he's dancing to getting jiggy with it as if he just got the Nobel Prize rather than committed a crime in front of the world, but for all of the wrong reasons, and your audience is smart enough to fill in what those are, for all of the wrong reasons, he gets a pass that nobody else would have gotten. If that isn't a reversal of privilege, I don't know what is. Do you do you think that the L.A. Police Department, they put out a statement after this incident saying they were aware of what happened, obviously, but that there were no charges against Will Smith because, as you pointed out, Chris Rock uh, did not want charges to be laid. But you're saying that the LAPD, you don't need to have a complainant. They could have laid the charge anyway. Is that correct? No, you're exactly right, Mike. It's helpful to have a cooperative complainant or victim. The prosecutorial office is overworked and underpaid. They have a terrible DA. But this is not exclusively does Chris Rock want charges pressing out. And by the way, Mike, while we're chatting about it, I really don't think Chris Rock has gotten enough credit here. I mean, for the vilification that Will Smith deserves, and I hope his stupid apology, you know, doesn't change the narrative here. I mean, you know, it's always like when somebody's caught, then all of a sudden the apologies come out, you know, in two seconds. Chris Rock's not responding. Chris Rock's not escalating this. Chris Rock, if he was truly being Chris Rock, because you can imagine, again, I'm going to use Dave Chappelle. If this happened to Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle would have spent the next three hours making jokes about alopecia and Will Smith's open marriage. The fact that Chris uh, Chris Rock didn't respond, didn't retaliate, didn't escalate this, you know, took the classy way out, I actually think makes this cultural part of the story even more apt when you look at just how rotten to the core I think Will Smith is inside. This is not his first touch of violence, Mike. You should read his autobiography it's actually a fascinating autobiography but i think chris rock's part in this is equally worthy of discussion as to just how much of a gentleman and by the way a comedian who tells jokes he acted i mean alopecia now mike in the news is the new cancer you can't make fun of that well in my opinion you can make fun of anything words are not actual violence will smith to me is now a criminal
Speaking to legal analyst Ari Goldkind, Ari, the Academy Awards has issued a statement saying that there will be a review of the incident and there could be consequences involved. Tough to know exactly what kind of consequences could be apportioned out here, but what do you think an investigation or a review or review by the Academy Award should look like and what kind of consequences do you think should be uh, on the table? Great question, Mike. First of all, I think this is just a posterior covering. I don't want to use the word that starts with A and ends with S, and there's an S in the middle of it on your air because I'm a gentleman. But this is a posterior covering exercise. It's going to lead nowhere. It means nothing. It's completely false. You know everybody at the Academy and all of the new membership. None of them are going to do a thing to Will Smith. And by the way, I don't actually think his Oscar should be taken away. He actually gave the best performance of the year as Richard Williams. It's an amazing movie that nobody saw and everybody should. I think these are separate things. And if you're not going to take away all the Oscars from Harvey Weinstein and various other people that have done various things in Hollywood, uh, you know, I don't think you remove it. And if you remove the Oscar from him, you make him more of a martyr. You know, to me, I think this is an issue of law and order and crime and whether he's ever welcomed back to the Oscars auditorium. But, you know, I'm not somebody who cares what this elite, out-of-touch, completely privileged, wacky, up-is-down culture in Hollywood does to Will Smith. I'm much more fascinated by the fact that across this country, in Canada, Mike, and in the United States, you find me the percentage of people who commit a felony live on tape and get to go to a party the next uh, evening and celebrate it and be cocky about it. I just think this is completely posterior backwards. Again, not to so use you, the other word that's much shorter. Right, right. So you think that, okay, forget about this this investigation by the Academy Awards. You think this is down to the LAPD, that they should still come out with an assault charge against him? What are you saying? Okay, and I th- the answer to that is yes. I think the prosecutorial yeah. office has to make a gutsy call that they won't make. If you understand who the DA is in Los Angeles, Will Smith is untouchable. Okay, An ordinary Joe named Joe Blow, very touchable but Will Smith untouchable. But what message does this send, particularly to younger people, particularly to younger people in different cultures, that, you know, if a joke is made at your wife's expense when you're $35 million a movie, his wife talks about alopecia, she hosts a show called Red Table Talk, where she talks about her open marriage and her other lovers. You're now telling me the LAPD and the government, a democratically elected government says, Oh, yeah, we're just going to leave it as okay and hunky-dory that a man stands up, walks for 15 seconds up to a smaller man, and sucker punches him. Let's not forget, Mike. I mean, I I hate the the fact that this is forgotten. This was a complete sucker punch. Let's not forget that. Chris Rock couldn't defend himself. That's a part of the story that I think is also a heinous part of the story. Ari, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Mike. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.